I want to say to our guests, we're so thankful that you're here. We really appreciate your attendance, and um, we hope that you'll find some, some reason to come back and return. For those of you who are traveling through, we wish you a safe journey. For those of you who are in town and maybe looking for a place to call your church home, we'd, we'd love to, to help you find that church home, and we'd really like to help you find it here. To the rest of you, I want to say it's good to see you. I know that Last week, weather and illness kept a lot of people away. We do miss you when you're gone, and I'm not saying that to shame you or to make you feel bad. It's just, a, it's just how much we love you and care for you. Uh, we, all, we all miss seeing you, so, um, so just know that. Well, I've had good feedback from this Hope for Healing series, and the intent of all of these sermons is to help us grow spiritually. Um, this is, of course, tied in with a class that we have on the topic, Life's Healing Choices, which is based on the book by John Baker. And we're hoping that this is also going to um, launch us into our Celebrate Recovery program that, Lord willing, will begin in January of 2018. Now, at the same time, here's, here's one of the the myths about all of this that I, I want to be very clear to bust. When you hear about programs like Celebrate Recovery or a class called Life's Healing Choices, it's very easy to think, mm-hmm, that's a good class, I support that. That's a class for people then who have maybe some kind of particular addiction. That's true, but it's not limited to that. In fact, it's open to anybody, and I'm going to use their language, it's open to anybody who has a hurt, a hang-up, or a habit. Have you ever been hurt? Do you have any habits you'd like to overcome? And how about just those general hang-ups that you're really not sure what it is, it's just maybe a chronic feeling of uh, the grouches or something, I don't know. What, whatever it may be, we all, in fact, I've known people that have been involved in Celebrate Recovery who've said, I don't know why I'm coming here, but I just know I need to be there. And they may not ever discover that, but what they are discovering is what God wants them to be. And that's really at the heart of Christianity, not just a particular program. That God all along has been wanting us to become who He wants us to to be what he always intended for us to be. We sang about that this morning again. Thank you for teaching us that new song. It was new for me, Brent, the one about, um, um, you know, the door is closed, I can't go back, uh, life has changed. And you're going to see that in Scripture too. And, and by the way, we're at the, fi- we're at the fifth healing choice. And when you look at the four that preceded, that we admit that we're not God, that we trust that God cares for us, that we commit our life to Christ, and then we confess our faults. After those four, you can't expect that things are just going to stay the same. You know, uh, we all want God involved in our lives. You're here at church. I know that's the way you feel. I know that's the kind of people that you are. But you have to think about what that means when we ask God to be involved in our lives. Uh, One writer said that uh, we have to be very careful, for example, when we sing the song, uh, 
Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Remember that song? You have to be very careful because Jesus will show up and he'll bring some of his um, friends with him and he'll say, do you have room in your heart for them also? Because they're people that I love. When we ask God to be involved in our life, when we seek to have God be a part of our lives, God's Spirit will not rest easily on the shelf with all other bad influences and all other concerns. God is not going to take second place to anything. I'm not saying that to scare you, but I am saying that to cause us to think just how great and important and magnificent this journey is. And so we get to the fifth healing choice. I choose to submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask Him to remove my flaws. The image of the potter in clay is helpful here. Because when the potter takes a lump of clay and molds it into a shape, gives it form, he's forming it into a shape that will be useful. But again, it all is at the touch of the potter. He's the one who gets to shape it into what it's going to be. While it's still soft, the potter can form it back into a lump and then start all over again. If there's a flaw, if there's something that it's starting to warp or misshape, he can push it back together again and then reshape it. But the potter gives the pottery its shape. When we choose to submit to God, we submit to His rule over our lives. Now, stop and think about that, because this can be, this can seem scary. It's like, you know, that that we're we're used to being a people who have a lot of choices, who pick and choose, who, 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 uh, in fact, all of the different uh, institutions out there in our world, very few of them are this plain about their authority with us. They always act like they want to give us options. You're flying on our plane. Do you want to fly up here? Do you want to fly in the middle? Or do you want to fly back here? It's all fine. You get a choice. Now, we are going to have to charge you more if you want to fly in first class. But it's your choice. We get all of these choices. But in many cases, we don't have choices. We're we're given pretend choices that we think we can select. And somehow it makes us feel like we're in control. God is clear about the relationship. He's the creator. He is the potter. We are the pottery. We are the creation. It's not fitting that we should presume to tell the master, to tell the potter, hey, listen, today I'm feeling a bit like a, uh, I don't know, a flower vase. You think you can work on me there? Give me the, the flower vase look? That's really what I want to do. Anything else I'm not interested in, I'll go find another potter. It doesn't work that way. And God's shaping us into something useful and beautiful and good. But to do that, we've got to be soft like the clay. We've got to be humble. And when we're not, when we don't yield, that's where the flaws come into our life. Um... You see this in a verse like Romans 12, and I want to pay a little attention to this verse because there's some interesting things there. Romans 12, uh, the first two verses of that chapter, 
Paul comes to his point uh, about many things in, in that book. He's speaking to the churches in Rome, and he says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. That's the softness of the clay. We, we recognize it and we respond. Unlike the culture around you, which is always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God is going to bring out the best in you. And He will develop well-formed maturity in you. Many of you ask me, what, what, what translation is that? I believe that's Eugene Peterson's The Message. And I wanted to use that because it, it uses simple, plain language to, to get the idea across. Uh, some of the more traditional translations will say, uh, do not be conformed. Uh, when's the last time you used uh, the word conform in a sentence? Conformity, maybe, but conform. But don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which is saying essentially the same thing you see here on the screen. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. That's conformity. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. The changing of your mind, the renewing of your mind to focus on God effects a change within us so that it's not just our mind that's changed, but it's our mind, it's our heart, it's our behavior, it's all the above. Now, if, if this is the way it is, that by focusing on God, we truly do get closer to God, if this is our goal, if this is what we dream of, if this is what we hope for and pray for, then, then why do we end up resisting change? I mean, if God can bring maturity out of us, why do we resist? There's a few good reasons. Some of these uh, come from uh, John Baker's book, Life's Healing Choices. One is, we're so used to embracing what is familiar. It's, one of, it, it's, it's part of that particular nastiness of sin that our own hurts, hang-ups, and habits can become so familiar and so comfortable that it not only becomes our routine behavior, but it becomes our preferred behavior because we're familiar with it. We like it. We want it that way. You know, I grieve sometimes. I've got a chair at home, and this chair is very comfortable. And the poor thing is falling apart. It, it just looks horrible. The chair before that, uh, I think, had survived since the Middle Ages. And I was constantly repairing. I would, I would create pieces of metal and wood just to repair it. But I don't want to give it up. Do you know why? Because it's comfortable. But it's broken. And it's the same way with our lives sometimes. They may be broken, but it's our life. We know it and we're comfortable with it. And we don't want to let go of it. Because the change might seem unfamiliar and fearful. Another reason why we resist change is because we have a mistaken identity. We confuse the flaws. You call it what you want. The character flaws, the hurts, the hang-ups, the habits our sinful tendencies, just all the above, we begin to confuse those with who we are. And you'll notice that 
when you start excusing your behavior by saying, well, this is just who I am. This is just who I am. I'm keeping it real. This is just who I am. And when you do that, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not only do we do that with excuses, but we can also do that with confessions. I'm an angry grouch. I just always have been. I'm just an angry grouch. That's all I am. That's all I'll ever be. Boy, I need God to forgive me. I'm a mess. I'm a drunk. I'm an addict. I'm a this. And we use that label as our definition. What that does is that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay? A self-fulfilling prophecy is when you, you make the future come true because you've already accepted it. You might say, you know, I, there's a lot of things I'd like to try to do. I'd like to be better, but I'm probably going to fail at it, so I don't think I'm going to do it. Great. You have just created a prophecy that you yourself will make sure comes to pass. I appreciate it when people who are discovering what God can do in them, instead of using negative labels, say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a child of God. I struggle with anger. I struggle with impure thoughts. Now, you see the difference there? That's not just PC language. That, that's not just um, you know, a better way of saying the same thing. The difference is the label is child of God. The label is believer in Jesus Christ. The label is I am a redeemed saint. And you know, it's okay for us to be saints. Scripture uses that word a lot. And you might think, oh, I'm no saint. I don't, I don't match up to that level. What do you think a saint is? When you read 1 Corinthians, a saint is someone who is being saved, someone who's sanctified. And this what's happening here. This is the process of sanctification. God can put us in the right standing. He can take us wherever we're at. And he can put us in the right standing before him in terms of our guilt, in terms of our bad behavior. But will we continue to let him work his salvation so that he purifies us, makes us better, he sanctifies us, he makes us more holy? I love the saying, God loves you just the way you are. But he also loves you enough not to leave you that way. You get it? God's grace comes to us and meets us where we are. We don't have to be perfect and cleaned up to be acceptable to God. God makes us acceptable. That's justification. But he loves us so much that his love is a changing love. It's a transformative love so that we become more of what he's calling us to be. The salvation of God doesn't just end at baptism and then we have to stay out of trouble. It's a constant process of him shaping us and shaping us with an identity. Here's what I want you to know. If you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you do not struggle with your identity. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. He's given you his identity. Would God, when we say God is the creator, he has created us in his image. That's the identity that God is drawing out of us. So all the other quests for our identity and all the other labels of identity, positive, negative, or anything in between, we're, we're mistaken because we're avoiding the real identity 
of human beings created in the image of God. Well, there's much more we can say about that, and we probably will one day. But one of the reasons we resist change is because defects have their dividends. Yeah. Emotional immaturity has some rewards. So why give it up? You know, if, for example, if you're the um, gentle little snowflake who's always upset by things, people walk on eggshells around you and will give you your way because they don't want to upset you. Why give that up when you're going to end up getting your way? If you're the angry parent, and you know that all it takes is for you to stand up out of your chair and yell and scream, and it'll make the kids be quiet, then why give that up? Defects have dividends that we may not admit. We don't want to give it up. And we may even justify the reasons we're doing it. Well, I know I pop my cork and I act all angry and everything, but you've got to understand, the reason I'm doing that is to set everybody straight and to get some control. Sounds good. What you have is not control, though. Well, you know, if I weep and whine and complain a little bit, then I'll get the attention I want. At least I'll get what I want. And people understand that I'm special and important. Yeah, they don't, that's not what they're thinking. Uh, that's not what they're thinking. We've got to question that in, in, our, in ourselves. Maybe we're not, maybe we're not uh, yielding to the change that God wants to make because not only are we comfortable with our behavior, but it works for us. Or we think it works for us. Last reason why we resist change is because of the evil one, Satan. Satan's name means the accuser. The accuser was a position in the Persian court. You know, think back about the days of uh, uh, Queen Esther, okay? The accuser was the one who had to make sure that, that the enemies of the emperor were called out. And the accuser, he's kind of like a, a, a public prosecutor, would find people and would give accusation to why they were enemies of the emperor. So this this became an understanding, a, a, a way that uh, the people of God said, you know, that's, that's similar to the role of the evil one. The evil one who accuses us before God and, and calls out all that we've ever done. And in Zechariah, you even see a scene where the accuser stands before God calling out the sins of Israel. But at this point, God has chosen to forgive. And so he stands before the accuser and he says, my paraphrase, that'll be enough from you. Their days of accusation are over. But when the accuser does his work on us, you are going to have messages rolling in your head and in your heart that you are constantly going to be reminded of the ways that you have sinned against God and sinned against others. And you know that God has forgiven you. And you know that others have put that behind them. And yet, still, that becomes the accusation that we wear. And we can't get to the change and the healing that God is promising us because we continue to listen to the voice of the accuser. We've got to hear the yes of God. The yes of God's grace is much louder than the accusation 
of the evil one. I want you to know this. Satan does not get the last word. He does not get the final say on who you are and who others are. God, the Creator. There's no equal. There's no, there's no, there's no two sides to this. It's, it's God. And Satan plays his part as the accuser. We just need to decide whether we're going to listen to the accuser and not be changed or listen to God and become something new. Which takes us back to uh, that, that, that passage in Romans 12. That word that's used there in Romans 12, be changed by the renewing of your mind, or uh, I think, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word in Greek, that's the word right there. We use it in English. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And you probably learned that in biology. You got the big, fat, fuzzy caterpillar. It goes into a cocoon, and it comes out, and it's a beautiful butterfly. Metamorphosis. Change. This is actually a moth that you're seeing on the screen. We had some of those in our garden in Lake Jackson, uh, in the front yard. And we had those, uh, we had those, those, those caterpillars, and they looked just like the caterpillar in Bug's Life. You know that cartoon? Big, fat, green thing with... Red and yellow bumps and blue bumps all over it. And oh, we were fascinated. Our sons were young then. They were all fascinated by it. Those little guys would run around and, you know, we just, we kind of even protected them, make sure a bird wouldn't get them. And then one day they get wrapped up in this, um, uh, you know, cocoon. And so we said, well, this will be fun. Now we'll get to see what comes out of there. And weeks went by, months went by. I was getting ready to chop down the bushes, and I thought, you know, I think these guys have had it. You know, they, they didn't survive. Who knows why? But thankfully, because I was being lazy and didn't cut down the branches, we, showed, we, we looked, and, and this kind of a moth, it's called a Cecropia moth, this moth was out there. They're huge. They're bright orange. They've got fur on them. They look like a little tiny fox with wings. They're red and white. But the point is, that process of metamorphosis takes time. Metamorphosis literally means changing the shape, just like the potter that reshapes the clay. It's a remodeling process. It takes time. And so, five things we need to know about this in our Christian walk. We need to give it the time that it takes. We sometimes get frustrated because we're in day one of the change process and we want to jump ahead to year 15. You know, why can't I just get it all fixed right now? We live in an instant society where we want everything done now. Folks, you're involved in a walk that's going to walk you right into eternity. Give it time. Accept the things that happen today one step, one day at a time. You know, we, 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 we might make such big changes in our life and then something comes along and we make a mistake and, and, and we want to throw up our hands and say, that's it, it's over. Okay, but when we do that, we're not yielding to the changes that God wants to make. He's going to make the changes. It's not all on your back. It's not all on our back. God's going to make the changes. And here's a word for the church. 
Sometimes we look at one another and we see that somebody makes a mistake even though they're making a big turnaround and we say, mm, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they've got it in them. We need to give others time. We need to give them time to change. Hold them on course. Encourage them, yeah. But let's give it time. We need to celebrate victories. Why is it <clears throat> that we always notice when we get it wrong? You know, if somebody's overcoming, uh, let's, say they, um, let's say they have a drinking problem. And if somebody's overcoming that, and they slip up, they, you know, they have something to drink, that person might condemn himself or herself. Others might say, mm, oh, they were doing so good. We all pay attention to that. I think we're kind of tuned into that. Our media, our news, our government, our institutions, they like to focus on where people fail. And I'm not saying that we don't treat that seriously. But isn't it also right to celebrate the victories at the same time? I mean, what about all the days that someone decided not to drink? They did it before, they can do it again. They can open themselves up to what God's doing. You might be trying to grow spiritually and maybe you're reading your Bible every day and you've made a commitment. You miss it for a week and you say, oh, I failed, what's the point? Look at, how, look at what you've gained so far. Keep reading, celebrate the victories. This is a shift. This shift in and of itself, this shift of attitude might be part of the process of change that God is shaping within us. Finally, I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go through this change as God wants us to if we'll focus on God power, not willpower. Willpower is only going to get you so far. Don't, don't have time to talk about the exaltation of uh, willpower in our society. You know, but we live in a world where if you want to do it, you just do it. You just, you, know, you just screw up your courage and tighten your fists and you go and you do it. Thank you, Friedrich Nietzsche. But we don't have time to get into all that. We, uh, because there is only so much power there. It's going to fail us. We might be able to change ourselves. We might be able to intend some things, but there's some things we can't do. Why would we go that direction instead of relying on the limitless power of God? Throughout Scripture, there's a message. Is anything too difficult for God? It's a, it's a question that, that gets raised. Is anything too difficult for God? When people are in hopeless situations, when Abraham and Sarah are saying, we're old, we're not able to have children, you promised us a child, that's the only way that this salvation project is kicking off, great idea, God, but we're going to try to do it our way. Actually, that didn't work. And so God visits, three angels visit, three travelers, they visit Abraham and ask Sarah the question, is anything too difficult for God? A year later, she has a child. We need to learn to rely on the God power that's available to us through His Spirit. And again, that can be scary too. What is it? Well, rely on it. Today, right now, we're relying on electricity, whether you understand it or not. We can rely on God power. Okay, next point is, and this is one that may help us, doing good is better than feeling good. I know that we like to think that what we get out of this, again, because we live in a day and age where the way we feel, 
I mean, everything is meant to make us feel better. You buy this product, makes you feel better. You do this, it makes you feel better. You go to this place, it makes you feel better. Everything out there is supposed to make us feel better. But sometimes we're going to have to focus on doing better or doing good. During times of conflict, uh, we've always had this little rule that we say, you know, because you'll have two opposing sides or three different sides uh, during tense times. We we like to teach people, okay, here, here's, here's the fact of the matter. Because sometimes what we want to do is when you have people at odds with each other is we try to persuade them to one side or the other. And sometimes you can't do that. So you've got to remember this rule. You can think whatever you want. You can feel however you feel. But you can't do whatever you want. I mean, that's never been an excuse Never been in a convincing excuse. Why'd you do this bad thing? I just didn't feel right. Oh, well, okay, why didn't you say so? If you didn't feel right, you can do whatever you want. All the rules go out the window, of course. Now, you can't do whatever you want. Sometimes we have to do what we know is good, even though we don't feel like it. And then our feelings and our thoughts catch up with our behavior. That's maturity. That's change. And finally... This is an important one. As we start to see what God is doing in our lives, as we've made our confession of faults, and then God is shaping us into the kind of people He wants us to be, we've got to replace the bad that we turn away from, the bad that we reject. You know, some some of us in this process of growth are making big changes, and there's things that we're taking out of our lives. If you have a certain weakness with things, then guess what? You may not be using social media anymore. If you get on social media and go to stuff that's impure, you might have to get rid of that. If, if, if you get on social media and get all nasty and mean and start you know, calling people out, you may have to quit that. But when we get rid of those things that have been so much a part of our life that have been bad, we can't just stay empty. We've got to replace it with something good. There's a parable about this. It's one we don't hear about very often. Good, good spooky Halloween parable because it includes evil spirits. And, uh, but I'm, I'm going to help you with that right now. Don't get distracted by what sounds like demon possession in this parable. If it, if it helps you to interpret it or to interpret evil spirit as negative thinking or sinful thoughts, that's fine. It works, all right? Besides, the point of the parable is not to teach us about the operation of demons. The point of the parable is to talk to us about replacing the bad with the good. Jesus tells this story. He says, when a defiling evil spirit is expelled from someone, it drifts along through the desert looking for an oasis, some unsuspecting soul it can be devil. And when it doesn't find anyone, it says, I'll go back to my old haunt. And on return, it finds the person spotlessly clean but vacant. It then runs out and it rounds up seven other spirits more evil than itself and they all move in, whooping it up. And that person ends up far worse than if he had never gotten cleaned up in the first place. The point of the parable is, you know, the person or the house, depending on the translation you're reading, is all tidied up and spotless and clean And looking good on the outside, but there's an emptiness in there. 
You've got to fill it with a good spirit so there's no room for that bad spirit and his seven ugly brothers to show up and, and take the place. What is the good that you and I can embrace? What is the good that we can not only think that's a great idea, but we can really put it into our lives? You know, many of you have said, and you've told these stories, and I encourage you to tell these stories, that you've been trying on your own with your willpower to be a better person, and then you went on some mission trip, or, or you, you went and started working with uh, uh, the people at Hope Chest, or, or doing good stuff with Cure, or maybe just something on your own to go and help people, and that has been rewarding. That's the good spirit. You don't have time to focus on what's bad anymore. You're replacing the bad with something good. That's change, and that's what God brings about. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would um, use your power to shape us into the kind of people you want us to be. We ask that as individuals, and we ask for that as a church, that we believe that this congregation belongs to you. We believe that this church is your church, that this church is the bride of Christ, And Father, we believe that you're the creator and we give up and we confess our failed attempts to try to shape ourselves and shape this church into something that we want it to be. And instead, Father, we're turning this all over to you, asking humbly that you would shape us in the way that you want us to go, in the way that you want us to be. And Father, I pray that we will find the good that you set before us and we will embrace it. Lord, if there's anyone here who needs to make that decision this morning, to serve you, I pray that you'll give them the courage and the energy to do so. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this song.